0: Pray. Father, may we genuinely, truly, and deeply believe the words we have just sung. That with you there is hope. Only in you there is hope. Always in you there is hope. So for those among us this morning, who are struggling to keep the faith, to fight the good fight, struggling to hang on to that hope, give them strength, give them grace, to marriages that are struggling. Or may we remember that you're our hope. To parents who are struggling, especially with children who have turned their backs on Jesus, Remind them this morning that in you there is hope, job situations, health conditions. May we see you and submit to you this morning as our great hope. So now as we open your word together, may your spirit have freedom in our hearts and our minds and our souls. Give us once again this morning in your word hope. In Jesus, in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I would invite you to find a Bible. I hope you have one with you. If you don't, that's okay. We have some in the hymnal rack of the pew near, of a pew near you, and so please take one of those out and find page 1005 in the church Bible, or in your own personal Bible, you can go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 this morning as we continue. Those of you who are new with us this morning, we've been working our way through Mark's gospel, and we find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 10. I think this is like part 37 in our series. Um, And we've entitled this series Life on Purpose. It's a life that Jesus lives for us. And then as we come to Him in faith, He invites us to join Him in living this life on purpose. And that purpose bleeds over into every area of our lives. That's one of the reasons a Mark's gospel touches on so much of real life. And one of the reasons we here at Bethel preach expositionally, which means we take a book of the Bible and we preach verse by verse through that book of the Bible. And one of the reasons we do that is because it forces us to deal with the issues that Jesus dealt with. We can't ignore things. Now, if I were picking what I was preaching next... I would preach always on the birth of Jesus, or the death of Jesus, or the resurrection of Jesus, or eternal life in Jesus. In fact, my favorite topic to preach on is heaven. I can't wait for heaven. We've just sung about it this morning. But this side of heaven, doing life in a fallen, broken world, we have to take Jesus' words and apply them to real life. And so this morning, I'm going to preach on a very hard thing. It's not so hard preaching on marriage. It's hard preaching on the end of a marriage, on divorce and remarriage. I want you to know this morning that I stand before you not as an expert on marriage. And the people sitting right down front over here could tell you a thousand reasons why that's the case. They have to live with me. But I have good news. And that is, I know an expert on marriage. In fact, it's better than that. I know the expert on marriage. And we have his words before us this morning. One of the reasons that marriage and divorce and remarriage is a hard topic to tackle is because the one standing behind this pulpit knows that that will trigger bad memories for some of you and elicit strong emotions in you, the betrayal you have felt and maybe you're still feeling after being hurt by an unfaithful spouse. The discouragement that you're right now fighting because of the situation you are in. Or the despair you feel because in the past, you're the one who was unfaithful in the marriage. This is a hard text because divorce causes deep hurt. And that's why I want to begin today by reminding you and calling you to claim the grace that Jesus has made available to you. There is no sin that's too much for His grace. No sin that's been committed against you or by you that's too much for the grace He offers to you. It's it's first Corinthians, excuse me, 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 where Christ says my grace is, present tense, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so in Christ there is forgiving grace and so our sin won't have the final say with us, grace will. In Christ there is restoring grace, teaching us that God doesn't put us on the shelf. He doesn't relegate us to unusable status after we've sinned. In Christ, there is overcoming grace that empowers us and enables us to keep on following Jesus even when we still deal with the pain of past hurts. In Christ, there is also empowering grace that equips us to right now, regardless of where we've been, to right now live in obedience to God's will for us. Regardless of what we've faced or how we've failed in the past, God's grace, this is, this is how I want to begin this one, I want you to get this, God's grace really is sufficient for all of life, enabling us then to flesh out his plan for marriage in life. So what is that plan? Well, let's read it from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 12. Mark tells us that Jesus left there, that is Capernaum, up in northern Israel, that's the Galilee area, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of our God, and this is his word on marriage. And the big idea here then is that God wants you and me to embrace His plan for marriage. Not your plan, not my plan, not society's plan, not Oprah's plan, not even your spouse's plan. And maybe you're thinking, okay, PK, let's just get something straight here at the beginning. I'm all in on God's plan for marriage, but where I am in life right now, this isn't very relevant to me. But it is to my spouse. And so I'm behind you all the way, PK. Let them have it. Okay, just remember that Jesus talks about getting the log out of your own eye before you try removing the speck from someone else's eye. Or maybe you're divorced and remarriage isn't on your radar. You're single, you're happy. I want you to know that God God has a plan for you, God has a purpose for you. God hasn't wasted and won't waste your past. He can use you now to encourage someone who is where you have been. You are uniquely equipped now to walk alongside of them in a way that others can't. You're living proof to them that God's grace is sufficient for them because it's been sufficient for you. Or maybe you are a young person this morning. You aren't dating anyone And if that's you, then this text is especially relevant to you. It's a call for you at a young age to embrace God's plan for marriage now and to covenant with Him that if and when, if or when that day comes, that you're all in on His plan. So wherever you are in life, I want to remind you and me that we aren't here by accident this morning. Marriage matters to all of us because marriage matters to God, and God matters to all of us. And the principles he gives for marriage don't just apply to marriage. They affect all areas of life. There isn't a gospel for the singles And there isn't a gospel for the married, and there isn't a gospel for the elderly, and there isn't a gospel for the young. There is one gospel for all people of all ages in all life stages. And when we learn the will of God for one area of life, it will inevitably bleed over into other areas of life. So let's fasten our seatbelts this morning. Let's prepare for takeoff into this text by setting the context of Jesus' teaching on marriage. It's significant when this conversation on marriage goes down. Because Jesus has just, remember, Jesus has just been doing a whole lot of teaching on humility. He's been drilling down deep into the hearts of his disciples by defining greatness as being last of all and servant to all. And the juxtaposition of Jesus' teaching on marriage with his teaching on humility isn't just some happy coincidence, it's intentional. And that's why it's important that we learn to read the Bible as story, where we're able to follow the flow of thought and connect the dots between verses and chapters and scenes. Because Mark right here in the very first 12 verses of Mark chapter 10 is showing us that the first person we're called to serve is our spouse. Let me just be up front here. The number one way, if you're married, the number one way you serve God is by serving your spouse. Give yourself up for them. Lay your life down for them. Trade your self-interest for their interests. You sacrifice your dreams for their dreams. Humility shows up first and shows up best in marriage. That's the connection Mark is making between Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10 when he tells us that Jesus is on the move again. He's leaving his home region of Galilee. He's doing what many of us would love to do this time of the year. He's heading south, not to Florida, but to Judea. And that's significant because Judea is where King Herod rules. Jesus is moving into territory. That's under the rule of King Herod. And Herod is a player here because remember back in Mark chapter 6, remember Herod divorces his first wife when he gets eyes for his brother's wife and he takes her to make her his, her his new wife. Her name is Herodias. And when John the Baptist publicly speaks out against that marriage... Herodias gets so ticked off that she asks her husband Herod for John the Baptist's head on a platter, which she eventually gets. We need to remember that because the Pharisees do. Remember that the Pharisees are the big wigs in the Jewish religious system, and they're the other players in this scene. And the whole Herod episode from Mark chapter 6 provides a perfect opportunity for the Pharisees to trap Jesus while he's on Herod's turf. And there are crowds of people who are there flocking to Jesus to hear from Jesus. And because the Pharisees have to get Herod to sign off on their plan to kill Jesus, these people, these crowds could serve as eyewitnesses and help the Pharisees build their case against Jesus. Which is why just out of the blue, all of a sudden, the Pharisees pop the question. Hey Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife Like Herod did. Simple question, right? But it's not an easy question because it's a loaded question. The Pharisees want to pit Jesus against Moses. They want Jesus to openly contradict the law regarding marriage and divorce while on Herod's turf. And Jesus knows that. He's privy to that. By the way, it's never a good idea to spar with Jesus over what the Bible says. Which is why he answers their question with a question. Come on, guys. Really? I mean, you need to hold your cards a lot closer to your chest. So why don't you tell me what Moses commanded you? Well, Jesus, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. And that was true, partially. So I really need you to stick with me here for a moment. Because the Pharisees are alluding back to Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 which says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her out of his house. So ha, got you Jesus. There it is in black and white. But hold on. Do you notice that... That Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 is not a complete sentence. All you grammarians out there, it's not over yet. In fact, did you know that the sentence that begins in Deuteronomy 24 1 does not end until Deuteronomy 24 verse 4? You see what the Pharisees are doing? They're ripping from its context Moses' statement on marriage and divorce. And someday when I'm dead and gone, and you think back on my ministry to you here at Bethel, there's one, well, there's more words than one that I want you to come to your mind. But I want you to always remember this. In the Bible, context matters. In the Bible, context is king. I mean, it matters in all of life. There's no area of life where context doesn't matter. Context matters even when I say the words, I love you. It matters if I'm saying them to my wife, Joanna. It matters if I'm saying I love you to our dog, Lucy. It matters if I'm saying I love you like I did yesterday at Texas Roadhouse to that perfect slab of steak. It matters, and it matters how I say I love you. It matters if I say it with a smile on my face or if I say it with my jaw set and my fists clenched like, I love you. That matters. Context matters. And it does here as well because verse 4 in Deuteronomy 24 tells us that verse 1 isn't really about Moses giving approval for divorce. It's actually about Moses preventing a man from remarrying the same woman He has divorced. It's all about protecting that woman from having to go back into an abusive relationship with an abusive husband. And so Jesus answers the Pharisees by saying, come on guys, we both know that Moses is making a concession here. He's not commanding divorce or even condoning divorce. He's saying that if... If a man writes a certificate of divorce, here are the rules that apply. And guys, Pharisees, Moses had to do that because husbands were going all willy-nilly with divorce. And it was about to destroy society. And people say today that the Bible is not contemporary. It was complete chaos back then. And it is still complete chaos today. And Jesus says, here here is why Moses wrote what he wrote. It's because of your sinful, hardened hearts. You were always looking for an easy way out. And when your next marriage didn't work out, you wanted your previous wife back. And so Moses enacted a law that would require you to consider the consequences of divorce. It wasn't about Moses giving you permission. It was about prevention and protection. Now, it's important that we get that. Because the Pharisees had embraced a view of divorce that was taught by a rabbi named Hillel. How would you like to walk around with that name? Hillel. Hey, Hillel, time for dinner. I mean, imagine being a kid with that name. That's free. All right, I didn't even have that in my notes. (laughs) But Hillel, the rabbi, applied the word indecency in Deuteronomy chapter 24 to anything a husband didn't like. Maybe she's got severe bedhead in the morning. Indecency. Maybe she's got awful morning breath in the morning. Indecency. By the way, I'm not kidding. We have Hillel on record as saying if she burns the bread that's indecency, divorce her. Sounds like a nice guy. Maybe that's why he got the name. And that's why Jesus says, guys, the answer to your question isn't really about understanding the ins and outs of divorce. It's about embracing God's plan for marriage. And for that, You've got to go all the way back to the beginning of creation, Jesus says, because as we learn in the sound of music, the beginning is a very good place to what? To start. Okay, so let me do just a quick check-in with all of you because I know this has been a lot of background and contextual information. Let me ask, are you still with me? All right, so are we good to keep going? Please say yes. Yes because I worked really hard on the rest of this. And actually, everything we've looked at so far is really just to set us up to understand and grasp God's design for marriage. So now that we've taken off, now that we're safely in the air, you can unfasten your seatbelts, but please don't move about the cabin because we really need to grasp what Jesus is saying here when he begins by telling us that marriage begins with God. That's verse 6. That's God's design for marriage. It begins with Him. And so we look to Him. We ask Him. We read Him. Marriage begins with God. Jesus says here that God made them in the beginning of creation. God made them male and female. Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1 verse 27. He's showing us that marriage begins with God because He is the Creator. Mankind did not evolve out of some formless, shapeless, primordial ooze. We aren't evolutionary beings who are here by chance. We are created beings who are here on purpose. And that's good news. Because knowing that means that we can live life on purpose. And that means our marriage has a purpose. We are God's idea, and so is marriage. It isn't something we dreamed up to make sense of our existence. Because in the beginning, Adam doesn't come to God and say, the first man ever created, doesn't come to God and say, you know, God, I feel like there's something missing. Like I'm not quite complete. Do you think, God, that maybe you could create a woman to be my wife? No, in Genesis chapter 2, it's God who says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so I will make a helper fit for him. Marriage is God's good plan, created by God for his good purposes. He knows what we need, and he knows what's best for us. And that's why secondly, Jesus says here, That marriage is an exclusive relationship. It's one man, one woman for one lifetime. That's why God created Adam as male and Eve as female. God did not create two men for marriage or two women for marriage. He did not create one man and three women or one woman and three men. And so, in the very beginning, and from the very beginning, homosexuality is not an option. And in the beginning, neither is divorce. There aren't a few single men or single women hanging out on the other side of the Garden of Eden in case it doesn't work out for Adam and Eve. So, in the beginning, divorce isn't just inadvisable, it's impossible. And that's because God's plan is one man, one woman, for one lifetime. That's why God goes on record in Malachi 2 verse 16 and simply says it as simple as possible. I hate divorce. This is one of the moments where I wish I could do the old Star Trek thing. Anybody remember Star Trek? I mean, the good Star Treks back in the 70s and 80s. And you remember the old Star Trek thing where they would teleport people? I wish I could do that now with you and teleport you back in time to conversations I've had with a husband or wife in my office. They're contemplating divorce, they're facing divorce, they're enduring divorce, and it's heartbreaking to see in their faces and to feel from their souls the intensity of the gut-wrenching pain that inevitably accompanies divorce. As I thought about that this week, as my mind went back to various scenarios with various people, I thought to myself, you know that pain... The deepest pain I believe a human can experience, the pain of betrayal and hurt and breakup, breaking one in two is going to hurt. And I thought to myself, there's proof, there's evidence that God's design for marriage is good. Because when we get good ripped from us, it hurts deeply. It doesn't just hurt the husband and wife. It hurts the children. It hurts extended family members. Divorce is never pretty because sin is always ugly. And some of you know that because you've lived that. So I want you to know this morning that you are not an outsider at Bethel. We want you and we need you to be an insider at Bethel. You are essential in helping others who are enduring what you've endured. In assuring them that God's grace is sufficient for them like it has been for you. We celebrate the ways that God will evidence His grace in and through you into the lives of others. Divorce doesn't define you. Grace does. And that's one of the reasons that God makes two allowances for divorce. Now, Mark Mark doesn't touch on this in Mark 10, but Matthew does from this very scene in Matthew 19, where Jesus says that there is an allowance for divorce when there is sexual immorality or adultery, Matthew 19, verse 9. And the second allowance for divorce is abandonment. When a spouse walks away from the marriage covenant and the Apostle Paul addresses abandonment in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Now, I'm not going to go any deeper into God's allowances for divorce this morning. We'll do that another time. And I realize that isn't a very detailed explanation. It doesn't cover every scenario or address every question, but that's the upshot of God's allowances for divorce. He designed marriage to be an exclusive one-man, one-woman, lifelong relationship because thirdly, Jesus says that marriage is a covenant relationship in which the two become one flesh. Verses 7 and 8, where Jesus again is quoting from Genesis chapter 2. And he is saying that marriage means that you cut the apron strings from mom and dad and the husband now is stuck like glue to his wife permanently. As the old 70s song says, there's no slip out the back, Jack. There's no make a new plan stand. There's no need to be coy, Roy. There's no slip off the bus, Gus. Marriage is a permanent thing. It is not a test drive. It is not a rent to own. It is not a try it to see if you like it. Marriage glues you together so tightly that no longer are you two, you are one flesh. Everything about you becomes one with your spouse, your dreams, your bank accounts, your body. Physically, you're one. Financially, you're one. Spiritually, you're one. And that's why, young people, please listen to me. That's why it's vital that you marry a committed follower of Jesus. Because spiritually, you are one. In marriage, the two become one. So it's never about me. It's always about us. As one flesh. And that's why near the end of every wedding ceremony I officiate, I repeat Jesus' words right here. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man tear that asunder. Because if you do, you're tearing apart the heart of a covenant that God has ordained and he doesn't just take that seriously he takes that personally the disciples get that which is why when they get alone with Jesus in the house they ask him for clarification and that's because what Jesus is saying isn't just counter-cultural for us today it was countercultural for them in their day. And so Jesus says, let me say it as clearly and concisely as I can. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is saying that apart from the two exceptions of adultery and abandonment, don't Divorce and don't remarry because that's adultery. Now, I realize in a room this size, with a crowd this size, that there are probably some of us in this room who fall into that category. And I want you to know that you don't stand alone or sit alone as a sinner this morning. I was going to have at this point everyone in this room who is a sinner to raise their hand. I think we get the point. You are surrounded by sinners. Not just out there, but right here. And the good news for sinners is that they are the only kind of people that Jesus came to save there is hope in life and death as an adulterer as a gossiper as an overeater as a drunkard as a worrier There is hope for every sinner. And so even the one who has committed adultery by divorcing and remarrying apart from the allowances God gives in His Word, you are not beyond the reaches of His grace. His grace is greater than your sin. And I believe that not just because the Bible says that, but because the Bible shows that in John chapter 8. Where there's a woman who's been caught committing adultery. And the Pharisees, probably some of these very same Pharisees from Mark chapter 10, take her and they bring her to Jesus and they throw her at his feet. And they ask, The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus kneels down and he writes in the sand. And he stands back up. We don't know what he writes in the sand. And I think the reason we don't know what he writes in the sand is because John wants us to catch what happens next. Jesus asks and says, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And nobody says a word. And nobody throws a stone. And then Jesus kneels down again and writes in the sand again. And again, we don't know what he writes. But as he stands to his feet, one by one, from the eldest to the youngest, the Pharisees leave the scene. Each of them. And Jesus turns to the woman and he says, Woman, where are your accusers? Is there anyone here that is left to condemn you? And she says, no. There is no one, Lord. No one left to condemn me. And she is right. There's only one man left standing. It's Jesus. And he's not standing against her. He's standing with her. And so he says to her, Neither do I condemn you. So go, and from now on, now on, sin no more. Woman. Woman. You notice Jesus calls her woman. And that can be used in a derogatory way. But it isn't here. Because if you ever stopped to think that if she's caught committing adultery, She isn't alone. But the Pharisees don't bring the man. They bring the woman. And in this scene, Jesus is standing with the woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But that isn't Jesus excusing her adultery. It's better than that. It's Jesus forgiving her adultery. He takes her sin from her by taking it to the cross for her. He will take her stoning, not with stones, but with nails and a spear and a crown of thorns. And the same is true for us. Jesus stands with us in our sin when He dies for us in our sin. That's why Isaiah 53, verse 5 says that he was wounded for our transgressions, every single one of them, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We are sinners. Each and every one of us who deserve death, each and every one of us. And we can't we can't do enough to undo the sin we've committed. And that's where Jesus steps in. And Jesus takes our place. Living the life that we couldn't to die the death we deserve. And he answers for that sin. Adultery. Gossip. Pornography. Overeating. Drunkenness. And he says, Father, treat me as if I had committed every one of Kenfield's sins. Do you believe that? Are you trusting in the one who did that for sinners like me and you? Because Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Say, Save me? After what I've done? And who I've been? Yes! Romans 10 verse 13 answers that by saying everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how great our God's grace is in Jesus. Would you turn to him in saving faith? Would you come to him and embrace him and you will find that he will embrace you and stand with you like he does with this woman in John 8? And when you come to Christ and find forgiveness in Christ, now you have purpose, a new purpose in marriage and for marriage. And so here are the three takeaways for today. Here are the three action steps. Here's what we take. Number one, God calls us to value His design for marriage. It's all about worship. It's bowing before God and surrendering to God and saying, Yes, God, you are the sovereign designer and creator and savior who not only knows what's best for us, you're the one who gave yourself for us to redeem us. And that's why, if you're single this morning, God's design for marriage still applies to you. You aren't lesser because you're single. You're one of God's children. We're all family here. And we need you to keep pointing us to God's design for marriage. Young people, one of the ways you worship God is by saving your heart and body and soul for your future spouse. Don't give away little pieces of your heart, please. It will haunt you later. And for those who are married, one of the ways that we worship God is by secondly, protecting our marriage. It's precious to God. And what's precious to God is to be precious to us. And so guys, the number one way you express your, your worship of God and your love for God is to love your wife. And, wives, the big way you express your love for and worship of God is to love your husband. Protect your marriage, it's precious to him. Most marriages that fail don't fail overnight, they fail slowly when the small stuff is ignored, when kids, or career, or personal success, or individual happiness becomes the priority. So don't let your eyes wander or your mind wander. Don't look for relational or sexual satisfaction anywhere else or in anyone else because when you start toying around with sin, it won't be long before sin toys around with you. by working harder on your marriage than you do at your career or your lawn or your ministry. Keep on pursuing your spouse. Keep on falling in love with them all over again. Keep winning their heart all over again. Go on dates to Texas Roadhouse. Get time away to Galena. Just the two of you. Your relationship with your spouse is the relationship this side of heaven. So value that relationship above all else. And then thirdly, embrace God's ultimate purpose for marriage. It's a picture of His love for us. So when the world out there looks at our marriages in here, They're supposed to see enough of his love in us that they begin to realize his love for them. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that God designed marriage to be a reflection of Christ's love for his church, the depth of his love and the permanence of his love. And that's why we come to our Lord's table this morning. To be reminded once again of his love for us. That's why we come and we eat and we drink together. Reminding ourselves that in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And so he makes us this vow in Hebrews 13 verse 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, I'll never divorce you. And the death of Jesus proves it's all true we are loved deeply and permanently by God so by his grace and for his glory let's let our marriages be a reflection of God Amen Father may you take the words that I spoke in error that were not accurate And may you erase them from the memories of your people in this room. The words I spoke that were true and accurate, that were your word, plant them deeply in our hearts.